In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and that darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. O oh, star of wonder, star of light, star of royal beauty bright, lived and led full of grace and truth, bringing sight in the night, making children of light, to shine like stars in the dark, revealing the way to the way. Out of his fullness, we believed and received grace in place of grace, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, and we cry, holy, 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 for the true light that gives life has come into the world. Well, Merry Christmas. It is good to see you, good to have you here in this room. Those of you who are watching out in the commons, eating all of our cookies, we're glad that you're enjoying that. Those of you up in the loft, it's good to have you up here. I hear it's getting crazy up there. Those of you online in your pajamas, we're jealous. We don't really want to see that, but we're jealous because we're in, never mind. It's good to have you with us uh, as we uh, celebrate this, this birth of a child. I, you know, I was thinking about this. I don't, I don't think I would have to argue too hard to get you to agree with me that we live in a very divided world. We live in a divided country, divided over some very serious issues, divided over some, some very deeply held ideologies. Sometimes, however, we're divided over really insignificant things, and we find this division kind of separating us. And as I was thinking about what we're doing right now, as we're gathering to celebrate the birth of this child, I began to think about all of the division in our country and our world, and it's almost like this gathering that we're participating in is one of the few things that kind of galvanizes, that transcends, that bridges the divide of all of this division. That, that right now, today and throughout this weekend, all across our nation and beyond that, there are people from all ages, young to old, that are gathering to celebrate the birth of this child. And there are people from all kinds of social economic uh, status and, and strata that are, that are uh, celebrating the birth. There are people from different, different um, you know, political leanings. There's people from every different language, I suppose, and culture and race and nationality. And it's not just what's happening this weekend. Over the course of human history, for the last 2,000 years, there have been generation after generation after generation of people who've gathered from every century for the last 2,000 years, from every country, from every continent, and almost every culture that gathers to celebrate the birth of this child. It's a very significant thing that we do here. It, it, in one way, unifies us with people all over the globe and people throughout human history. And for some, and some of you today, it's really, it's just, it's a time to remember. For some, they would say a legend or a myth, something that may or may not have happened, but it's just kind of become a part of just life. For some, they would say, no, 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 I remember it as a, an event in history, something that actually happened. Others would go beyond that and say, I'm celebrating this, but it's more of a, a tradition for me. Some might even celebrate out of superstition. But then there are some, and many of us in this room would, would fall into this category, who come to these gatherings not just to remember an event in history, and not just to celebrate something of tradition, which those are all true, that's a part of it, but some of us would say, we come not to just celebrate and remember a baby, we come to worship this one who was born, 
Because it wasn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that changed the reality of our life here and now, today, and we come for that purpose. We come, and what's even more interesting to me is while this has been going on for 2,000 years, there were some who were celebrating his birth even before his birth. I mean, 600 years before the birth of Christ, there was like this, this pre-funk Christmas event. Like 600 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, and, and you know, we, we revere the prophet Isaiah, but you think about this. This is kind of like a spoiler alert. It's like he's telling you what you're getting for Christmas before it's ever been given, which isn't really nice. But he says, unto you a child is, is born, unto you a son is given. Like there's this Christmas gift you're going to get, and he already tells us about it. Like, okay, well, no surprise there, but it would be 600 years. And then it gets really serious because he says the government will be on his shoulders, now, when your child or your children were born, I know it was the most spectacular child on the face of the planet ever. I understand that. You had great expectations for your children. They're they wonderful. That's great. But this prophet Isaiah talks about this child and puts some undue pressure on the shoulders of this child, saying that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's a pretty heavy weight to carry as a new, newborn. To have that kind of expectation put on you that you're gonna, you're gonna be the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Well, just a few months before Jesus was born, an angel came to Joseph and put even more pressure on this little baby when he says about Mary, he says, she will give birth to a son and you will give him to, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We're gonna come back to this, but now, not only does this baby have to live up to the expectation of being the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, now it's the savior of the world. Pretty big expectations on this child. But it's this child that fulfilled all of those prophecies that we worship. It's this man, Jesus. And what I want us to do today in, in our time, in, in uh, brief by my standards, um, I promise. Um, some of you say, well, I don't know what that means. Just trust me. In a short amount of time, I want to just remind us and maybe explain for some why it is that for 2,000 years across the globe and this weekend, millions and maybe even billions of people will be celebrating this in the most clear and, and, and precise, understandable way I can. And I want to do this by looking at really just one verse out of the Bible. Some of you say, you know, I, I'm not a church person. I don't know the Bible. Great. We're going to just look at one verse, and we're going to read it together, and then we're going to kind of go through it just verse by verse to understand this verse that we're going to look at. Uh, William Barclay in his commentary said, this very well could be the single greatest verse in the entirety of the New Testament. Others have said there's no way, scholars, theologians would say there's no way you could ever plumb the depths of the riches of this verse, and I will guarantee you we're not going to try to plumb the depths. We don't have the time, and I don't have the mental capacity, but I do want us to look at this verse. It's found in John chapter 1, verse 14, and I wonder uh, if you're willing, would you read this with me out loud? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I just want us to walk through this verse, this one verse. It talks about the word became flesh. And in those brief little words there, in that little statement, people would say some of the most profound, most beautiful, deepest mysteries of God in theology are wrapped up. This word 
word, capitalized, capital W, is not talking about consonants and syllables and vowels and all that. It's not talking about sounds. That is the Greek word logos, which is the very mind of God, the very expression of God. And the mystery of how God in his mind, of his greatness and his expression, expresses himself in such a way that it becomes flesh. The beautiful mystery of how is it that the creator of the world becomes a part of his creation. How is it that that the the all-powerful becomes weak? How is it that, that the infinite becomes personal and the transcendent becomes imminent? That this great God that is beyond our our understanding, beyond our knowledge, unapproachable, now becomes this vulnerable, non-threatening little baby. The word became flesh. God shows up as a human baby. Profound mystery. And we could talk for weeks about that alone. But let's move on. It says, and he made his dwelling among us. He becomes flesh, and he comes, and he dwells right with us. There was a song about... 25 years ago, quarter of a century ago. Some of you will remember this very well. That's because you're old. About 25 years ago, there was a song that had a decent popularity. It was a song by Bette Midler, and it was kind of an existential song. As we talk about, you know, things on a global perspective and from, you know, this perspective of our life and humanity and all of this. And it wasn't a Christian song. It was on radio. And then the chorus came, and she would sing, God is watching us, which is kind of a cool line. God is watching us. And then she repeats it. God is watching us. And a third time. See, I could be a lyricist because you just come up with one good line and you repeat it a bunch of times. God is watching us. And then the tagline at the end of the course, from a distance. Now, all due respect to Bette Midler and whoever wrote this song, but this is where her lyrics and the Bible separate ways. Because she is saying God is watching us from the distance. The Bible says that he came and dwelt right among us. You've got to decide somewhere. Do you go with bet or the Bible? And my bet's on the Bible. Because the Bible said it wasn't from a distance that he was watching us, but that he dwelt right among us. He was right there. That God of all creation enters into his creation and dwells right here with us. In Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible called The Message, he translates this This verse this way, he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Came right here. Lewis Smedes, who is a a psychologist, author, in talking about this whole concept, he said when Jesus came, he didn't come to visit. He brought his toothbrush, his razor, his pajamas, and he came to stay. He comes in the most unassuming, illogical way. He doesn't come in some palatial suite. He comes on on a little feeding trough in a barn. And not with designer little clothes for an infant. He comes with these little swaddling cloths. And, and it's not with, with the dignitaries and the prestigious people of the time. It's with these uneducated outcast shepherds and a couple that has been kind of you know, looked down upon because of some rumors about their lack of morals. And God comes to this right in the midst of our life and our world. And we here at Cornwall have been studying this passage of John 1 for the last three or four weeks. And as I've been doing the study on this, reading on it, one of the authors made a statement about this concept of the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. And when I read it, I'll just tell you, when I read it, I, I recoiled. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was borderline repulsed that this author would use this terminology for my Lord and Savior Jesus. And I just like, no, no, that's just, that's wrong. You just cannot say that. But honestly, the more I lived with it, and the more I thought about it, 
And the more I dug in with, with what he was trying to get at, I began to say, you know what, I, I think that's accurate. That, that he would use that kind of a terminology for Jesus in this, because I think that's what Jesus was trying to say. And, and before I tell you what it was that he said, I want you to know that I say this not in trying to be cool or street level or whatever. I say this not in any way to denigrate my Lord and Savior. I don't mean this in any kind of demeaning way to degrade him at all. This is said in the, in the greatest level of reverence and awe and respect and worship of my Lord. That this line, the word became flesh, this truth came and made his dwelling among us is that, is that he left heaven's home and becomes earth's homeboy. And I mean that with all due respect, that he becomes one of us. He's our guy. He identifies with us in our mess. He leaves the splendor of heaven and comes to the squalor of earth. As Ron said earlier in the service, he's born into the straw and the manure of our world, not only literally, but figuratively. In the ordinary life of straw, in the ordinary messy life of manure, Jesus comes as one of us to be our guy identifying with us. In Philippians chapter two, there's a passage in there that says that Jesus, who has this unchanging essence, he's God, but he doesn't feel like he needs to hold on to that and, and play the God card. He gives that up and he willingly makes himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he's found in appearance as a man. There's a title for Jesus that's often used in the Christmas story. It's found in Isaiah and again in the New Testament. It's Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That God is with us. That here he comes and he is part of us. So the word becomes flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Now, let's move on. Last week here at Cornwall, I taught our congregation how to pronounce this word glory. Because it's spoken wrong in the Northwest. I'm from Louisiana. In the Northwest, glory has two syllables. In the South, it has three syllables. Any of you here last week at all? Can you help me teach our family and friends how to say glory correctly? Can you, can, don't leave me hanging on Christmas Eve, Cornwall. Help your pastor out here. Can you help me out on this one? Okay, so remember that, think through, okay, here we go. One, two, this is how you say glory. One, two, three, glory. Yeah, there's three syllables, glory with an inhale, glory. That's how you say it. All right, now let's all try it together. Glory. Yeah, that kind of sucks the wind out of the whole place. We have seen his glory. That's how a good preacher from the South would say it. We've seen his glory. The glory, and, and this whole concept of glory, what is glory? I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a big word that we don't really understand. I think one of the great ways that I've figured out how to understand this is a story from the Old Testament with Moses. Some of you saw that movie. Moses comes before God and he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, this is what I'll do. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. That the most glorious thing about God is how unimaginably good he is. And sometimes we're not totally convinced that God is good. And maybe because of some circumstances or some situations or some things that you've experienced or, or you've heard, you're not sure that God is good. In fact, you might even think he's bad or even evil. But his glory is his goodness greater than our greatest hopes and dreams. Good beyond what we could ever imagine. 
And he shows us his goodness. He shows us his glory in this one Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father. And we, and we hear that, you know, from the Father. It's like, oh no. Like Jesus has been sent down and he's gonna see who's naughty and who's nice and then go tell the Father. Like, like he's here to get us in trouble, this authority figure. Some of you have had this issue with authority figures your whole life, the four Ps of your life. Parents, the principal, the police, and the pastor. I mean, it, I'm telling you what, sometimes you, I'll say, hey, what did I do? No, I'm just, just saying hi. Sometimes we think Jesus is one of the, the fifth P. Here he comes. He's going to get us all in trouble. See, he comes from the Father. He descends from the Father because we could not ascend to the Father in our efforts, in our goodness. We just weren't good enough. Jesus comes descending, but not condescending. He comes down to us, but not with this superiority authority saying, here's where you're wrong. I'm here to judge you and condemn you. In fact, the Bible says it's just the opposite. In John 3, 17, it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He sends his son to rescue us, not to tell on us, not to condemn us, not to judge us, but to save us. Any of you ever... Um, Growing up, or even now, ever watch old Western movies? Anybody? I mean, you can go ahead and vote if you want to. You don't have to. Okay, Western, black and white ones? Black and, yeah. Black and white Western movies. They have the exact same storyline, it's just a little different. But it's the same story over and over again. Here's how it goes There's a Western town, some thugs or some ruffians come into town, they take over the town. They terrorize the town. The town is paralyzed in fear. Tension builds as these thugs are there and the ruffians. And then suddenly, from out of town, someone rides into town and stops there on Main Street. <laughs> and there he is. And people are saying, he's not from them parts. He was a stranger. Don't know where he came. Who was that masked man? Same story. And he comes and he rescues the town from the thugs, from the ruffians who've kept them bound in fear and terror. You know where that Western story came from? The Christmas story, they ripped it off. That's the story. There's this planet that has been terrorized by this thug who comes and leaves people paralyzed with fear because of their guilt, because of their shame, because of the darkness, because of the gloom. And in from out of town, descending from the father, the son comes in to rescue the planet and free them from fear. That's why he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's why for 2,000 years, people have been not only remembering, not only celebrating, but worshiping this one who came from out of town and dwelt right with us. And the word became flesh the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And then this line, full, full of grace and truth. What you need to understand is when Jesus came, he only had two things, grace and truth, and a lot of both. Full of grace, full of truth. I mean, the whole concept of grace for us, 
it's so hard to understand. You know why? Our whole lives and our whole world is built on merit. All our lives, it's merit. You do this, you get this. You do this, you get that. You do this, it's, it's the whole... For some of you, the first time you ever had an M&M was because you went potty on the big stool. It was merit-based. You performed. You get an M&M. I mean, it's just, and it's been that way ever since. Isn't it true? Your grades, you do this, you get this. Your job, you do these hours, you get this paycheck. Everything's about earning it. Everything's about deserving it. That's not grace. That's something we earn. That's, some, that's, that's, that's remuneration. We're being paid for something. We deserve to get that. The concept of grace, we don't have that in our merit-based world. I mean, even when we use the word grace, because we do, even when we use the word grace in our world, it's, it's not the kind of grace that Jesus came with. Like, the grace that we talk about has expectations and an expiration with it. For instance, if you enter into a contract, an agreement, and you somehow get to the point where you're supposed to fulfill your end of the deal on this month and you fail to, they'll say, we have a 30-day grace period. Now, what that says is, during that grace period, there's an expectation and there's an expiration. During our graceful period for you, you're expected to fix the problem. You're ex ex expected that you would rectify the issue. You would make it right. That what, however means, whatever it takes for you, you've got to fix what's wrong. That's the expectation in our grace. And you've got 30 days to do it. That's the expiration. At that point, no more grace. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't come with a 30-day grace period because we would all be sunk, every single one of us. He says, no, 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 grace is what you can never earn or deserve. If you could somehow merit grace, it's no longer grace. It's just remuneration. Grace is for those who don't deserve it and for those who could never earn it. And he says, I come full of grace. No expectation and no expiration. It's just full of grace. In fact, that passage would say he comes with grace in place of grace, already given grace upon grace, just heaps grace on more and more grace. Grace, grace, grace. Again, we can't comprehend that. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. You ever heard that phrase? You ever experienced it? Have you ever heard of a thing called movie pass? A year ago, I was introduced to MoviePass, and I thought, this is too good to be true. And you know what? It was. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When Jesus comes full of grace, it's not a 30-day little window where you have to get things straightened out. It's not too good to be true. It's grace. It's too good to be missed. He says, I offer this to you, and I come full of grace. Don't miss out on this. You can never earn it. You can never deserve it. And in our minds, we start saying, well, yeah, that sounds good, and I hope that's true, but what about? And then we come up with all this stuff. Well, what about, you know, my friend whose life is a little messed up, who has some issues, who has some sin, is kind of broken, and some, some relational issues and some habits and stuff. What about? I'm, just, I'm asking for a friend. I'll tell you what. About your friend and your pastor, that's why we have grace, it's because we have sin and because we have mess ups and we have brokenness in our life and we can't fix it on our own. 
It's the very reason that there is grace. I think if Jesus was here, he would have a t-shirt that says, in essence, Christmas, you're the reason for the season. You are. You're the reason I came full of grace for you. And he's full of grace and truth. And then we go, oh, okay, now, now here's where we get the truth. I know, I know, I'm gonna hear everything I've done, everything I deserve. Why is it we think truth is always such bad news? You know, I've got to speak some, some truth to you. Does it always have to be bad? You know, you can't handle the truth. You know, I'll just speak to me straight, doc. Give me the truth. What, what are my chances? You know, relational. Give me the truth. What's the chance of a girl like me and a guy like you? Just give me the truth here. Just, what if the truth was too good news? Not bad news, but it was too good news. Like it just gets even better that there's grace and the truth he comes and brings is even better. I, I say this every year. My favorite line out of the Christmas story is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, where it says, this will be good news, good news of great joy for all, all the people. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter your past. Does it matter your brokenness, your failures, your sin, your history, your hangups, your addictions, your habits? It doesn't matter. This is good news of great joy for all, all the people, everybody. See, Jesus knows the full truth about you. That's why he's full of grace for you. He knows the full truth about me. My thoughts, my motives, my actions, my past, my sin. He knows it fully. And he says, that's why I'm full of grace for you, Bob. And that's what he offers to every single one of us. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is from the New International Version. I don't know if you've ever read this from the, the BAD, from the bad version. I didn't know if you even knew there was a bad version of the Bible. The bad version is Bob's annotated and demolished version. <laughs> Something I'm working on. So John 1:14 out of the bad version says this. The eternal creator God became earth's homeboy, entering our broken world in our messy story. When we look, we can't miss it. His resplendent magnificence, those are big words I wanted to use. We can't miss it. He met us at our level, not with condemnation, but with undeservable, unearnable, inexhaustible goodness and an unending message of excellent news. That's why for 2,000 years, people have been gathering in settings like this all across our globe, in every generation, in every country, every continent, to worship this one because of that kind of good news that we can all have a part of, that we can be a part of, that we can get in on, to have that. Like how does that, how does that become beyond just a theory or a concept, but my reality? And he says, here's the truth, again, that Jesus came with. In verse 12 it says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Grace already given, will you receive it? How do you receive it? By believing and trusting in what Jesus has done, not in what you're gonna try to earn or, or you know, deserve. And what do you get? 
this unbelievable privilege to be a part of his family, his sons and his daughters, to sit at that table, to be a part of his kingdom, this kingdom of love and of hope and of joy and of peace, and not just someday when you die, the kingdom right here and now to live with the grace and the truth of Jesus and to walk in that grace and that truth every single day. That's the good news, is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes into our story, and today he invites us into his story to redeem our story, to bring us to the table, to adopt us into the family, to allow us to be a part of this kingdom, the kingdom of life and light that is found in Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that, that I want to do is give you the opportunity to have that truth become the reality of your life. And maybe you've never heard it, never understood it, maybe you never really saw that as something that you could have for yourself, and maybe today's the day. So I'm so glad you're here. And I wanna give you the opportunity to start this life in light of Jesus and his grace and truth. I just ask you to just bow your head. And right now, if inside you say, that, that's what I want, that you just quietly in your heart just pray something along these lines. And Jesus, thank you for coming. Coming and being full of grace and truth. And I want your grace to cover my mess, to forgive my sin, to redeem my story. So I'm asking for you to come in and fill me with your grace. And I want your truth to guide me and to lead me each day. And I wanna walk as your son or your daughter in your kingdom, not only in eternity, but here and now to walk with you. So I ask you to be a part of my life. I wanna be a part of your kingdom. Amen. See, we believe that those words aren't necessarily magic words, but it's a redirection of your heart and your intent to say, Jesus, I want this gift that you offer. I'm receiving it. I'm putting my trust in you. And as I said, it's not just for someday when you die, but for here and now. To live in that grace, to live in that truth, to live in that kingdom of love and hope and joy and peace with Christ at the center of your life.